Word at Work from Fertility Matters at Work is a conversation about fertility and how it affects people at work. You'll be hearing from our community about what they experienced whilst trying to build their families, as our aim is to help you better understand this issue by sharing these stories. We also share our insights as we're now two years into doing this work. Plus, we're talking to the trailblazing organisations who are making these cultural changes the norm as well as bringing you thought leaders from the workplace wellbeing space. So, you know, we're looking at one in five women reaching midlife without children and recently one in four men reaching midlife without children as well. So, you know, this is very significant and it's estimated that 90% of those are childless, not by choice. So welcome to another episode of The F Word at Work. And if you're listening to this on the day it's been released, um, on the week it's been released, it is World Childless Week. And involuntary childlessness or being childless not by choice is unfortunately a part of the fertility struggle journey. And what we're keen to highlight, if you're listening to this as an HR professional or a wellbeing lead, when you're thinking about this conversation in the workplace, is making sure you're aware of the fact that even if somebody is embarking on uh, fertility treatment to have their family, it's not a guaranteed outcome of them bringing home a baby. And the reality is, is that those who are childless, not by choice, are often overlooked in the workplace. Now, we've started to talk more about this in organisations, and I'm delighted to welcome Katie Schnitzler, who is part of our community and Katie has been working with us to not only provide content that's within our knowledge hub but also to deliver some of the conversations that we're having. So Katie welcome to the F Word at Work. Thank you so much for having me. And we've been having some really fascinating chats haven't we in terms of the conversations that organisations are thinking about. Um, Most significantly we were joint hosting um, a session with Zurich and you're going to hear uh, from the amazing panellists that we had as part of this podcast episode. But Katie, just start by telling me a bit about the, the, the research and the work that you're doing on the childless not by choice topic. Sure. Yeah. So um, my work is really based on academic research that I've been carrying out There's not very much in this space, Um, as you're aware, Natalie, you know, there's not very much in, um, you know, fertility treatment at work or pregnancy loss at work. But childlessness, I'd say, is even more of a taboo at work. Mostly, I'd say that's because organisations are unaware of it, because society doesn't really recognise it, you know, for various reasons. But one reason is, you know, this pronatal culture that we face and you know that normalizes having children and expects that everybody who wants children can have them and anyone who doesn't have them is of course you know child free yeah they're quite okay with that decision um so yeah so I've been working with organizations to raise awareness about the prevalence of this issue to start with you know it is huge and as Jodie Day says you know this is an EDI issue that is very much hidden from the workplace, despite how many people it affects. So, you know, we're looking at one in five women reaching midlife without children. And recently, one in four men reaching midlife without children as well. So, you know, this is very significant. And it's estimated that 90% of those are childless, not by choice. So, yeah, I've been working with organisations to actually run training on this topic, which has been fantastic. It's been amazing that companies such as Zurich have actually been 
very much proactive and positive to learn more about this. As I mentioned, you're going to be hearing the story from our Zurich panellist who's chosen to be anonymous, sharing her experience on the podcast, which we totally respect, but just wanted to explain to you that we're not mentioning her name and nor is she. She's actually kind of reading a script that she wrote that she delivered during the session because Katie and I were very keen, as we always do with the panellists that we um, have at Fertility Matters at Work, we speak to people ahead of time to ensure that they're 100% happy with what they're sharing. We were very keen to be led by her in terms of what she wanted to say. And I think if I'm right, and I'm going to ask you, Katie, to tell me what you think, but I think we were both just kind of blown away when we heard her deliver her story. And I think you will feel the same when you hear her in a set, but just, and we were both also very protective of her sharing her story, weren't we? Because that decision to speak openly about this is where I'm at and this is what happened to me. It's such a vulnerable thing to do, isn't it? Oh, so much so, you know, because this is a grief which is often disenfranchised, you know, society doesn't recognise it and sadly that leaks into workplaces. But yeah, I would say it was, you know, as they say, you can hear a pin drop. It was like that, wasn't it? Yeah, totally. You could feel the energy. And what I thought was really particularly brave was that she didn't just talk about how it's affected her at work. She spoke about the reasons for her childlessness, which, you know, can make you so vulnerable at work, you know, because in work, you want to have a certain persona, don't you? Speaking about issues of, for example, domestic abuse. I mean, that's a taboo in the workplace in itself. And then she obviously spoke about loss and difficult fertility struggles as well. So she spoke of many different taboos. Yeah. And take that, please, as a trigger warning, if any of those references might be relevant to you and this might not be the kind of episode that you're you're ready to listen to we wanted to make sure you knew what to expect because it it was a hard story to hear of somebody's experience but she tells it incredibly well then you're going to hear a conversation that I had with Robin Hadley who is an academic in the area of male childlessness and Katie I know he's somebody that you um you are familiar with and you you've you've worked with just give an overview of your views on the work Robin is doing sure yeah goodness Dr Robin Hadley he is um amazing you know he's looking at a topic which is very stigmatized not really considered in society or academic spaces. You know, I'd call him a pioneer, if you like. The main aspect of Robin's work that I think I've really learned about and I've tried to use this to help with, you know, when I'm training companies as well, is that the effects of childlessness on men, they are often dismissed because society doesn't allow for males to articulate that they're affected by you know being broody and then not having children i think that's fantastic that he's raising a platform for this he also talks of the stereotypes that men face so you know the assumptions that well you can't be that upset about it you know because well, men that don't have kids, you know, they're bachelors, aren't they? And they're wealthy. They a great life. Yeah, that's it. And there's not this um, recognition of the, yeah, the emotional effects and that it is a grief on men, you know, as it is on women or, you know, people of any gender. Because obviously this is an issue that affects people regardless of their sexuality or their gender. Because, you know, we know that childlessness um disproportionately affects people who are you know from the 
LGBTQ plus community. And sadly, you know, there's stereotypes there as well. Yeah. You know, I've heard this before, you know, through my research. Oh, well, it's your choice that you didn't have children because, you know, you chose to transition. You know, I mean, it's just unbelievable. But yeah, Robin's work is inspirational. Um, I also really like the way he talks about how it's not a linear process of grief, childlessness. He talks about the pain coming in waves, which I really like. He spoke recently, actually, about, you know, his friends around him and colleagues around him becoming grandparents. grandparents. Yeah, he talks about that in the episode. Oh, amazing. I can't wait to listen, actually. He also, when he talks about the emotions and dumbing them down, he gave this amazing analogy of having like a concrete slab kind of across. I'm I'm doing, a, it's, it's pointless on a podcast, but I'm doing to Katie a kind of a, a line across my chest. So from my, my chest down, he talks about this concrete slab, like weighing down any ability to speak up about how mm. you really feel, which I think was, was so powerful. Amazing. Yeah, I think he's really helping to just raise awareness, you know, that this is something that affects men. And, you know, I mean, we don't give enough acknowledgement to how women are affected by this. But I think he's right in saying that, you know, men are even more so stigmatised and not on the agenda. Yeah. Thank you, Katie. Thank you so much for just collaborating with us because it's such important work we're doing. I'll put all Katie's details in the show notes and we can talk more about how we can facilitate conversations within your workplace. So have a listen to this episode. Please do check out again um, the details of World Childless Week. If you want to talk more and share more comms within your organisation, obviously this is a relevant topic for not just this week, but you know, all year round, but it's a good starting point. All our details will be at the end. I'm from a large extended family in rural Victoria in Australia. Farmers, farmers' wives making broods of kids, and this is how I was raised. I'm the second oldest and the oldest female of my 15 cousins. I've got photos of me as a youngster mothering my baby cousins, carrying them on my hip and bathing them. I was also the first of my cousins to marry in a big flashy white wedding in Melbourne. On my wedding day, I remember thinking, this is it. All of my dreams can come true now and some of the doubts in my head about my husband would go away. Maybe he would do some things differently and treat me in a better way. I'd been married for a few years when my niece was born in 2000. My sister-in-law was proudly showing her daughter to the family, wrapped up in a hand-knitted baby layette made by my mum. She said to me and my husband, Come on, it's your turn now. You've been married long enough. I just grinned and didn't say anything. I went outside and got some air at this point because the answer to that question was too hard to think about. When I turned 30, I remember having a rather heated conversation with my husband, who wouldn't commit to answering the question, so when are we going to have a baby? There was yelling and shouting and slamming doors and tears. I proceeded to ask a year later, and he said soon. He even encouraged me to go out and buy stuff for the baby. So I did. I bought a cot, a pram, little clothes, vests, and even stickers for the walls in the nursery. I was working for an insurance company in Australia at the time and a few of my colleagues around me were having their babies. I remember one morning my boss said she was feeling sick with a smell coming from the kitchen and she thought she might be pregnant. She came back in the next day to say that she was. I also shared that I wasn't feeling well. I thought I'd do a pregnancy test too. I was lying to myself so that I could join in the baby talk in the office. Even more years had gone by and I'd endured repeated and horrific counts of abusive behaviour. 
all behind closed doors and nobody knew, for it had been in response to me wanting to have a child, and my husband knowing full well he wasn't going to let that happen. Yet he made me believe he would. After almost two decades of believing his lies, I escaped my marriage, and I was now 40 years old. I then met a lovely man, my Notting Hill moment, where I'd met an Englishman, and shall we say making babies wasn't our problem. I remember seeing the second blue line on the pregnancy test and being elated beyond my wildest dreams. After all these years, I could do it, and what a joyful experience it was. We were on our way to tell his family one Saturday morning in June of 2017. We'd just signed up for a new car that morning and were talking about what it would be like putting a car seat in the back of the new car. It was a Ford ST, so a sporty little number would need a sexy and very sturdy car seat. On that car journey, I started to get pains in my tummy, and something was telling me things aren't right here. The outcome of that day wasn't what we'd planned. We ended up in East Surrey Hospital for the whole night. We were waiting for the person who could do an ultrasound to come and see me, and because it was a Saturday, staff numbers were reduced. We walked out of the hospital at dawn without our baby. I then became pregnant again the next month, but sadly I lost that one too. And this was an emergency rush into surgery in the early hours one morning as I was having severe convulsions in my torso and I thought I was going to die. I'd lost five pregnancies in four years. I was looking for medical answers. Why was this happening to me? I'm a good person. I would be a loving mum. I want to be a mum. I've been with Zurich through all of these losses. I'd had a lot of time off work and seeing colleagues in the kitchen or the corridor was hard. They'd say, oh, I haven't seen you for ages, with a lovely big smiley face. And then they'd say, oh, how have you been? This is where it got hard for me. I'd say in my head, how strong am I feeling today? What do I say? Do I lie? I can't tell them the truth. And this would then leave me feeling rubbish, as I knew I wasn't being true to myself. I was looking for some support, but didn't know how to ask for it, let alone be prepared for their responses. When I did say a few words to some colleagues, these were the responses I got. Oh, you know you can get pregnant. Keep trying. It'll be fine. My friend had this thing done, and it worked for her. You should try that. There's still time. Why don't you just adopt? There are lots of kids who need a loving home. I had an answer in my head to all of these statements, but I gave up trying to explain as they weren't getting it. If someone could show me just how easy it was to just adopt or to turn back the biology in my ageing body clock, I'd be all up for it but nobody could. With all the doctors looking at me from every angle, I was hopeful we'd find an answer. I'd say to myself, medical advancements, surely they'll find an answer. Someone has to help me have my baby. I started being doctor to myself, trying to diagnose what was happening. I'd plough through my test results and research through medical papers. I'd use Dr Google to help me find the answers, even if these doctors couldn't. I kept a detailed record of everything that happened to my body and when. It's the business analyst in me. I was thinking if we analysed all the data, we'd get an outcome. Because that's what happens in the business world, right? Where there was an outcome, but not what I'd expected. One of the CT scans found a tumour in the middle of my left kidney, right where the blood vessels supply the oxygen and the blood to keep the kidney working. All gynaecological effort stopped and I was thrust into six months of oncology and three more surgeries. By the way, the kidney thing's still there. I still have the tumour. Then after all of that, I thought I'd have one more roll of the dice and go in for IVF. And then everyone's world changed. The pandemic. In the weeks before lockdown, 
I'd started broaching the subject of donor eggs and had just started taking the injections to see how the drugs would deal with my body. One of my colleagues drove me to the clinic to get my next injection as my partner couldn't make it on that day. And then we all got locked up for months, for over a year. This was the end of my journey. A dream I'd had for over 30 years had come to an end. I was now exhausted. My physical energy, my mental capacity, the patience of my friends, my tolerance for anything else medical. I'd cringe at the mere thought of a hormone injection. My bank account and my spirit were shattered. I couldn't fight a global pandemic as well. And then as I realised I was grieving, I somehow reached a point where I found a voice. My voice. And I started saying these words out loud, involuntarily childless, childless not by choice. This vocabulary that is not part of everyday conversation, yet everybody knows somebody like me. I want to share with you experience that happened earlier this year when I was at a DNI event in London. I was in a room full of like-minded professionals who are passionate about making change and acknowledging the differences within our organisations. I very bravely shared a few words of my experience as a childless employee and one of the organisers came back with a very jovial, oh, you can have one of mine. I paused and thought, okay, how do I respond here? And this is what I said. I get why you've said that and I don't believe you mean any harm by it and I'm pretty sure you don't really mean it. Can I ask you to think about how your 13-year-old daughter might react if she heard you say that? She might think, oh, no, my mum doesn't want me anymore. And is she really going to have me live with someone else? I would love to have a 13-year-old daughter and the experience of seeing her grow up into a young woman, but I never will. The next time you meet someone like me, I guarantee there will be a complex and painful set of life experiences that person has gone through. Can I ask you to think about how you acknowledge their diversity with kindness and how different it is to yours? Thank you. And I've heard that before and it still catches me and I can see in your eyes reliving it again but I am I can't tell you how impactful you sharing your experience is and we were together facilitating the conversation within Zurich just the other week and already you've had people reach out haven't you and I know that you are on a mission to continue your voice being heard can you just share with me a bit of what's happened since and what you're hoping to achieve in terms of continuing the conversation because you've positioned yourself now as this person that is in a place where you are able to be confident speaking out. I know it still Mm -hmm. hits you hard when you're reliving it but you've put yourself in this position and as we always say when we're talking about internal support within an organisation that is so key for those taking on those roles to know that they can step down at any time. It's not a mandatory role. Mm -hmm. It's a role that you've put yourself in for now and we also support organisations in making sure that those supporting others are being supported themselves. That's a key part of that internal support. What are you hoping happens now? I hope that the organisation continues to embrace the opportunity that this topic brings to the fore, that the organisation can see there is value and there is benefit in investing in this topic. The numbers are staggering. And if the stats do actually come true, we are talking 30, 40, even 50% of our workforce who are going to be exactly like me in the future. If we don't start creating a platform and creating that inclusivity within our workplaces, our businesses will cease to exist. We have to change. We have to make allowances for the changing in our family setup 
it's not like it was back in the 1950s. Believe me, I wish it was. Mm. I'm a vintage girl at heart. I wear red lippy and full skirts and I really wish it was 1950 again, but it's not. So making allowances for the difference in our people today, but also for what's coming after us. I am passionate about letting those who are like me know that they're not alone. And I know that there are so many other people out there with a voice saying that you're not alone. I tip my hat to everyone who is on a platform and sharing that view. Without Jody Day, I wouldn't be standing here doing what I'm doing today. I have the same moment in time where I realized that my journey had come to an end. Jodie talks about her rain down the dusty window moment. For me, it's boiling the kettle. Those everyday moments in our lives impact us in so many ways. And when your dream does come to an end, it doesn't mean that you stop working. It doesn't mean that you stop living your life. But you have to find something else to do. Otherwise, you'll go completely stark raving crazy. And that's what's important to me. And just on that point of time, because Robin in the previous chat mentioned time, and when you and I first spoke, you spoke about how it came to a point where the timing was right for you. And I think that's such a key message, isn't it, for anybody listening, whether you are in a supporting role or if this is something that is impacting you personally, the timing has to be right. So from a supportive role as well, you can't force a person with this, can you? It's so down to how they feel and where they've come to in that journey timing is paramount and I know myself if someone in my organization had come on saying this message I would have absolutely listened up and tuned in but if I was still hopeful of being a mum and if I was still going to those appointments if I was still making baby clothes I wouldn't have been in the right mindset to be able to fully receive the message but when I did get to that point I felt so alone. I felt invisible, like I didn't have anything of value to add anywhere. But I also knew that that wasn't true. And finding that extra value in me at the right time, it's helped me and I know it's helped my colleagues because they've told me so. And it's also trying to then showcase why this is important to be proactive about rather than reactive to as far as an organization having the conversation because we just don't know and the numbers as you've said are stark and the people that are impacted by infertility and then childlessness and where they sit within an organization needs to be thought about now rather than oh well nobody's coming and talking about us so therefore why do we need to talk about it that's why we want to encourage organizations to be proactive because from you doing the work you've done over the last two years with the blog post and then we did the awareness piece where we had the webinar more people are coming forward again to you aren't they they are they are indeed and just on the timing point as well so they're coming forward at various stages of their own journeys but if the timing for them is that their dream has come to an end they realize they aren't going to become a parent What they are getting out of this message now is that they don't want other people to go through what they've gone through. And I think of our graduates and our apprentices who are starting now and they're in their early 20s. They've got their life ahead of them. They've got their dreams, their hopes, their aspirations. And some of those dreams may be wanting to have a family of their own. But if that doesn't happen, I don't want them to be as silent and as invisible as I have been. So if we don't acknowledge them, their expertise, their creativity, their investment, their value that they put into an organisation, we have to acknowledge that now so that they do stick around, so that we do get their development. We get value from investing into those colleagues 
and we keep them, we retain them, but we also see them in all of their life circumstances that happen in the future. So important. So well put. Thank you so much again for sharing your story and for what you're doing. And we will keep talking and just best of luck with it, because I know you have the sky is the limit with what I know you're hoping Mm. to achieve. But just that validation piece as a starting point is so important for those people that are probably behind you in the journey. You're paying it forward with this conversation. And that's the most important thing that we can do. So thank you. I'm so glad we did this, Natalie. My name's Dr. Robin Hadley. I'm a social gerontologist and my field of speciality is male childlessness and ageing. Now, this is a very exciting podcast, can't even get my words out, because Robin is actually sat with me in my living room. This is quite a rarity because in the world of virtual capability with podcasts, often I'm talking to somebody on a screen, but Robin is local. So when we were talking about doing this chat, I invited him round. Now, Robin has been a guest of mine on the Fertility Podcast in the past, and I've always been fascinated about the work that you do. And with it being World Childlessness Week, I was really keen to get that male perspective and hear more from you. And just as a starting point in setting the scene, because some of the stats that I've read that you shared in terms of the numbers, one in four men, one in five women are childless. And that number is projected to rise, especially with the over 65s, which I know it's something that you specialize in is people aging without children. And you talk about it being a non-category. Can you tell me a bit more about what you mean by that? Because we're not counted we're not seen by academia, by policymakers as a specific group compared to other groups that are out there, then we're not counted. And there are reasons for that. It's not as easy as to say, well, you come from this background or you're this economic degree. But it is doable because that data is not collected. We're not in policy. We're not in academia. And that's really important because funding, how services are developed, who they're developed for, who they serve, goes back to who counts, who's on the radar. And for however many people are on the radar, who isn't on the radar? And the childless really aren't on the radar, certainly in mid-age and older. And it is a factor in health and well-being and social elements being childless compared to being a parent. And we're going to talk about it in specifically relating to the workplace as we move on. But I just want to talk a bit about your own background, Mm -hmm. because I know you talk about the reasons for not becoming a dad being quite varied. Partner choice, partner changing, their mind changing, timing of relationship, events, economics... And I think it's important for people thinking about the childless community to realise that it's a whole variety of reasons that people, because obviously we know that there's the terminology of child-free, but Mm. involuntarily childlessness is something that, as we talk about fertility treatment, people often get there by circumstance, not by choice. And it's the same kind of thing for those that are involuntarily childless, isn't it? Uh, Absolutely. And circumstance is the the big one. Your economic circumstances, and they change. Everything's fluid. It's a very popular word at the moment, but it does describe everything. The gig economy means that people can't rely on a regular salary. What does that mean for where they live? Things are changing. People are making relationships now more connecting online 
done in the traditional way of pub, club or work was a, an incredibly important environment for people to meet up, marry, partner up and have children. So there was, in parallel to your employment career, was your emotional career and your reproductive career in that environment. Now, when we talk about fertility awareness, there's a real perception of it being a female issue, and we try to educate a lot that it's a people issue. And the male fertility conversation in itself is way behind what it needs to be. And we know, again, that there's not enough data talking about male fertile health. Can you talk to me a bit more about the association of parenthood, though? Because you talk about it being very much focused on women, don't you? Yeah, and feminisms and feminist thinking. It's been a core element around reproduction and that how women were sort of trapped by reproduction. That was their role and that was it. So you didn't need to go to work because your role is staying at home and being the motherhood and motherhood mandate. And that's changed an awful lot. However, underneath that, it comes down to a default, really. Still going through sort of Western societies, and I think most societies, sometimes it's overt and direct and really out there and very structured, and this is where you go. But other times, it's not. It's very much underneath. And while all that narrative and discourse is around women and reproduction, where are the men in it? And what narratives and discourses can men occupy? And it's not very many. And so when people say, well, men don't talk about reproduction or they're they're not bothered, a lot of that is actually they don't have the words to talk. Mm. And yet it's very, very core to them. And when they do talk, it tends to be in a very intimate setting and somewhere where they've got to have trust that they're not going to be made vulnerable. Now, the woman who wrote Handmaid's Tale which name's just gone out of my head. Margaret Atwood. Atwood. Margaret Atwood, yes. Margaret Atwood wrote The Handmaid's Tale, but before that she's written quite a lot. And in one of her books, she said, women are scared of murder and men are scared of humiliation. Well, I think we're all a bit scared of murder, (laughs) but she's bang on about humiliation. That's what men really don't want, and they don't want to be seen vulnerable. And that's put in them that's a societal thing we're all born with the same emotional capacities broadly so what happens that it's okay for women to emote and actually if you're a woman who doesn't want to emote you're sort of well that's a bit strange for you Mm. and men not to so all that is tied in with society and how we're socialized and that goes to also men not being able to talk because really there's a concrete block just below the neck going across the shoulders that's being placed there. So all those emotions are crushed underneath. And to release them, they tend to do things outside themselves. Work harder, drink harder, play harder, go out and do things, Mm. but not sit with the emotion until something happens. And then it might be more like a volcano. Right. So like once you've reached crisis point. Yeah. And there's no other option than to try and... Yeah. Okay. Because if that's happening in society, the likelihood of you then talking about it at work, which is where you're meant to show up and be whatever the expectation is, it's highly unlikely, isn't it? Absolutely. And particularly from that vulnerabilities element, if you take that, then many people don't go to work, particularly men, to be vulnerable. It's the opposite. We're going to fulfil the provider role. You know, I'm going to care for your provision. And this is my route to doing that. Mm. And I can't be vulnerable here because I may be seen lesser, maybe seem weaker, perhaps I won't get the promotion, perhaps my judgment won't be trusted. 
So there's a lot of factors not to be vulnerable and to be Mr. Stoic, Mr. Reliable. Now, in terms of then trying to get some understanding and some empathy and some compassion towards men who are struggling to become parents and ultimately who are involuntarily childlessness, talk to me a bit about the disenfranchised grief around Mm. it. It's a term that we use when we talk about loss associated with fertility Mm. and all that comes with that. But in terms of that whole actually never getting to become a parent because again it can't be seen and it's not tangible and it's so hard like you say from a language point of view to even express Mm -hmm. what kind of things from an awareness point of view from an organization should people be aware of but also that men are dealing with yeah well there's a lot there i'll give you i'll sit back there is a lot there (laughs) disenfranchised grief all societies have a way and rituals and mechanics of dealing with grief and bereavement. And sometimes, again, they're very direct. You're going to do this, you're going to dress like this for this period of time, and that's it. Other times, it's not like that. But people know you're grieving, and there's a social environment built around that. If that's not recognised, if your grief isn't recognised, so, for example, in the 1980s when HIV AIDS came through, that wasn't recognised. And so people weren't able to grieve because, in fact, not only was it not recognised, it was stigmatised as well. So, again, if you don't count, you're not counted. And that means there's little structure in society for you to occupy. The disenfranchised grief with childlessness is not being a parent, not occupying the roles of parenthood. For the men I've spoken to, those milestones of kicking the first football watching the first game, dropping them off at university, going to graduation, seeing them into their first accommodation, seeing them through the first job, all those sort of landmark things aren't there. And you're there and your peers are doing all that. And particularly with social media these days, they're advertising more than ever that they're doing that. And it's reminding you of what you're not. In the arc of life, there's an ideal arc and we're all looking to that. And then at some point, And usually in the mid-30s, you realise you're not there. Your expectation of becoming a parent, of having two kids and three-bed semi or whatever, you may have that, you may have the great career, but suddenly, actually, I'm not that part of the expectation and how do I get there and can I get there? So that gap between where you are and where you want to be is like a big hole and, in fact, that can be full of grief, but it's not recognised. I think for women it's different for men because of the association with women and motherhood. The responses that women get can be an awful lot of sympathy or completely opposite way of anger. Actually, you are a career-orientated, I'm not going to swear, woman, and you should be the other thing. But for men, what do you get? There's, mm, it's all about, oh, well, you can, here's a myth. Well, you can have kids at any time, okay, when sperm actually decreases in efficacy slowly from 35 onwards. Part of that myth as well is that somebody, let's say, let's say you're 60, uh, well, you can have a kid, you know, who are you going to find? It's very rare to find somebody who's 30 who's then going to have children with you. It's so rare that when it does happen, it gets big headlines. Mm -hmm. But it's very, very rare. And it depends on your social cultural environment as well. Every society has a period of when it's acceptable to be a parent. Too young, that's bad. Too old, that can be bad as well. A lot of the men I spoke to said, well, you know, I'm 
I've got to have a kid by the time I'm 50. Because of that thing of being in the pub, and I don't want to be an old parent. Mm. There's an age when you should be a grandparent. does a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to reproduction and reproductive ideals. So there's an awful lot around there, and people are taking that into the workplace. Mm. Men are taking it in, but again, don't want to be seen to be vulnerable, can't talk, unless it's in a very, very safe element. And quite often we'll just pass as being interested as, yeah, yeah, it's great that you're talking about your kids, but inside another death. Because I thought it was really interesting you said, just talking about age, that it's quite rare for men past 50 to become parents, which just we hear stories about rock stars and celebrities, really, more than your everyday Joe getting to become a dad at that age. Amazing how many have twins, eh? Hmm. Exactly, the wonders of science. But it's not openly spoken about, is it? No, it's, it's not. But for your average Joe, if you take the elites out from yeah. either end, if you're rich, I mean, really rich, you can do anything. Uh, I saw a paper the other day and a millionaire somewhere in the Far East had a surrogate 13 children, I think he had. Wow. And a couple had 20 wow. surrogate kids. Wow. But That's they're insane. really rich, yeah. so they can do that. But for most people, yeah. the cost benefit and working out the, the economics of having children sort of relate it down to one or two or three. And you've also found that there is a tendency for those in lower kind of socioeconomic brackets from the male mm. point of view to be more disadvantaged as well. Absolutely, yes. And uh, people are sort of uh, a bit surprised by that yeah. because, again, one of those sort of urban myths is that the working class are very fecund and are being kids everywhere. And it's not true now, particularly. And so, again, that's down to economics. If you're poor educated, a low income, then there is a selection effect and that women tend to look higher and not very often look lower on that scale. Terrible words I'm using there, but it's it's accurate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so the less chance you have of reproducing. It's a sad reality, isn't it? So let's take it into the workplace because I'll make sure that I put a link in the show notes to our white paper that we developed on the back of the research that Manchester Met University did on complex fertility journeys in the workplace. And you were involved in that from the male perspective. And we talked about that man at work, if there's chats going on about kids and that death inside. I just don't really think it's thought about. We talk Mm. often about the assumptions of women who don't have children, that they're Mm. career women. I don't really know what the assumptions are of men Mm. in the workplace that don't have children. I don't even think people give it more of a thought, do they? No, and that's something around that, around how men are seen generally. They're there, and that's it. I really don't need to worry about them emotionally. Maybe because they don't show emotions, but they've been socialised into that, but then that fits into a rather nice, bigger social aspect. So... I'm going back to my own personal story now. My friend and colleague ended up working in the same place from school. He became a dad, and I was so jealous of him. I think I was in my early 30s, so jealous. And we used to have a brew and lunches together, all that sort of thing. I couldn't face him. I couldn't be in the same room with him because I was so jealous. So I avoided him Mm. completely. I mean, we did actually have a chat eventually because it was such a a break from my point of view. But for me, you know, that concrete bar going across, it was only just keeping it in. I would have just burst into tears and would have just been all over the place. So I couldn't be that in front of him. But we did have a chat. 
And I said, you know, you've got the life I should have. And he said, well, I can't do anything about that. <laughs> Let's just get back to bruise and right. talking about whatever we talked about that was safe. So why do men talk about football and things outside of themselves? It's safe. Okay. It's very, very safe. So to try and encourage the conversation in the workplace mm. and try and help those in leadership roles be more compassionate mm. and maybe try and see if there can be peer support that's put in place. What's the starting point from your point of view, from men that you might have spoken to about issues at work? How likely are men to go, yeah, that's me and yeah, I need help? Because we're trying to invite men to lean in mm-hmm. and take part in these conversations. But like you've just described how strong those feelings of jealousy were and that you mm. wanted to opt out. You obviously kind of made that move to try and have the conversation to hold on to some element of companionship. Yeah. And, but it can be very easy to just opt out, can't mm. it? How do we get the men to opt we, in? Well, because there's no narrative there, going to put one in there. But it's got to be so tentative. Yeah. And again, that vulnerability thing kicks in. Be aware of the vulnerability. And that actually, if you're in a situation, you're talking about this thing that the man doesn't respond, it could well be he's just holding it all in. And that time might be a thing. Okay, I understand it's really difficult talking about this sort of thing. We'll leave it for now, but we'll come back to it. You have a bit of time to process, maybe come up with something and you can talk to me about it or signpost direct to counselling, that sort of thing, would be a way to do that. It's the vulnerability that's key and the lack of narrative to utilise easily. In work, there's lots of narratives you can just jump into and that's part of you, but it's not the inner you. And being the inner you in an outer place is very vulnerable. Oh, gosh, I just realised that. (laughs) Write down. Write that one down. (laughs) Yeah, a good thing is that men often do research. And if you say, well, you know, this chap, say me, he's done some research, this is what he found. And from my counselling days when I did that, what I realised that men will go, well, that's not me. And that's fine, because then they often say, I'm this. That gets them thinking. Yeah, and then, okay, so you're that, and what does this mean? I mean, that's counselly sort of mm. things. It really may not be appropriate for a manager to be mm. going out there unless you've got training that. But it's that sort of element. Actually, men like to research to find out things. So maybe that's a pathway there. You know, here's what some other men have found. There's some groups online, only a few around childlessness, but they are there. Very few compared to how many around women. Mm. But mental health, then Andy's Man's Club, all that sort of thing are coming through. But it could well be, if it's a safe place, the man will come back when he's ready to do it. Because in the work that you have done, you're the founder of Aging Without Children, and there's particular emphasis on the over 65s, the numbers are quite staggering. It's projected to rise to 2 million men and women childless by 2030. Yeah, it is. And that's a sort of underestimate mm. because we're, unlike a lot of countries, we're not quite sure how many men are biologically childless. Mm. We're fairly sure that it's around about 20% of women. That goes for most countries, higher in Japan, but we won't go around the world. And probably around 25% of men. And the reason for that is because when birth is registered, the mother's fertility history is taken, but the father's isn't. So you can't do that maths take you away thing. And also that data has been collected for decades. So you can see the trend of how its fertility is trailing down now. 
but for men, they're absent from it. So the ONS did a couple of documents a couple of years ago, and they were saying in 2045, there's going to be a 30% increase in the amount of 80-year-old women who are childless. And this is a big impact on health and care provision and their health as well, mainly from the policy element. How do we provide for this? But there wasn't the data there for the men. So 2045, this cohort of women are going to be coming through. There's going to be an invisible cohort of men there. So for health and care services, there could be quite a lot of men knocking on the door and they're going to say, well, where did you come from? Mm. So it's doing that sort of basic data gathering has long-term impacts. When we're looking at the workplace scenario then, and Mm. we're talking about men who are potentially in senior positions and childless, and we're maybe looking at them to maybe be role models and lead some of this conversation just Mm. as a scenario, because we can't say who might be more keen to talk than another. From the conversations that you might have had, are there experiences of those childless men who are involuntarily childless in the workplace being put upon in a different way that needs to be considered by the workplace? Because the conversations I've had from the female point of view, I've certainly heard that, and I'm assuming it's the same presumptions that are made. You don't have children, therefore you can work here. You don't need that leniency here. Yeah, you can work on social hours. You can fill in quite often that same conversation around well, so-and-so is off because of child issues, then you fill in, you know, actually one of the guys I spoke to, his partner was a nurse, and he said, we just got all the rubbish shifts because we didn't have children. So Christmas, New Year, all those sort of thing, weekend shifts. Well, that's right, only my first marriage, my first wife was in the bank, and banks then, I'm pretty sure they do now, you had to book your holiday a year in advance. And again, it's, well, if you haven't got children, you're not going to get the summer holidays. You're not going to get those days around Christmas and New Year because they're reserved. So there is that direct discrimination. And some of the men I've spoken to have said, you know, particularly the ones that have gone through IVF or ART treatment, not only is am I picking up their work, but, you know, the cards come round that we have to sign, reminding me of what I'm not. So that's part of that disenfranchised grief reinforced in reality but actually you know I've got to stay late now it's like my life doesn't count as much Mm. and yeah they mid-aged and later aged working people can have caring responsibilities for parents for their siblings maybe for neighbours who knows so there's that non-recognition around and one of the guys in the study said you know with my boss it was fine I could tell him about everything we, he was very flexible he moved on i got a different boss i couldn't do it it was from him so there was something about him that i just didn't let him know so i worked it so that i could go to the clinic i could support my partner in these ways so yeah work is a contested space in so many ways but it's certainly a contested space when it comes to reproduction So as a kind of closing, because I know we could carry on chatting because I think it's so fascinating. There's so much that needs to be better understood. Mm. We've talked about maybe some signposting in order to start the conversation, Mm. maybe sharing this podcast if we are trying to engage men in the conversation. What would you hope that the workplace takes on board in terms of this particular conversation, the impact on involuntary Mm. childlessness for men? Men are human too. Mm. And just because they don't display it, and it's easy to go along with things. Okay, he's not displaying, 
In fact, it's great because I can just rely on him. He's always there. It's fantastic. Is he there? And is it through choice? So there's a lot of consideration of actually unpeeling the onion and seeing what's there for the men. And it could well be they'll be very surprised that this is being offered, that somebody's listening mm. to them. So, yeah, quite often men, when all that thing's churning underneath the concrete block, reach out to work harder, play harder. And that might be symptomatic of actually something going on inside. Because it feels like, from what you've shared, that you'd assume, with women in particular, say a woman's in her 40s, that's when the assumptions start to be made that, you know, maybe they've missed the boat or they you know, they didn't mm. want to have children, what have you. But there's the assumption that a man is still virile mm. at that age. And so it feels like there's a real lack of actual realisation mm. within how we view yeah. these different groups because we all hear of Mick Jagger and we all think you know yeah. Charlie Chaplin and they're really kind of outdated examples yeah. of late fatherhood really aren't they so it's really saying actually this could be something that a man is dealing with in his mm. 30s mm. it might be that if a relationship's broken down or there's mm. been a diagnosis of infertility mm. or just I don't know other issues like we described at the start that that's when this kind of mm. labeling for want of a better word actually comes into effect Absolutely. And as you were talking, I remembered that two guys I used to work with, they were in their early 40s, they were both profs, so they'd done really well, they had careers where they got in touch with me and said, you know, recently become a dad, best thing ever. I didn't realise what I was missing. Right. I didn't realise what was missing. So I think there's something that really reflects the lack of narrative. And the men I spoke to said, there's something missing. And that's a real key phrase, there's something missing. And there is something missing, obviously they're missing, they're achieving their ideals, but also it's reflective of the lack of narrative around there. There's something missing. I don't know how to speak. I haven't got the words. I've got the emotions. Mm. So if I can't do it, I don't know how to do it, I'll do what I do know. Mm. We've known each other for maybe, I mean, I've been doing the podcast for eight years. I think I met you quite early on. Mm. So say over five years, have you seen changes with the narrative? Have you seen improvements? I mean, the fertility conversation is improving. Mm. As I said at the start, the male fertility conversation is definitely improving from what it was eight years ago when my husband went through being told that the problem was with him. Yet we still use words like it's taboo and it's stigmatised and that type yeah. of thing. But in terms of the workplace, do you think the workplace is ready to really embrace this? I mean, we're early on in educating mm. the workplace about the challenges that people have building their families anyway. Mm. Getting them to understand that it doesn't necessarily mean just because someone's struggling and they're going through fertility treatment that they're actually going to successfully bring home that child mm. and all that comes with that. Uh, no, I don't think the workplace is ready and yes there's a growing amount of narrative coming through around men about childless a lot of it is related to infertility and there's a whole population who don't go through infertility treatment that are still out there people like me i've never been through infertility treatment so i'm not recorded people who are childless 80 percent are involuntary 10 percent are infertile and 10 percent are chosen so there's an awful lot out there but also i think for men they may not recognise, they may not term themselves as involuntary childless because they buy into the narrative of, I can do it anytime, I'm not really bothered, but actually I just can't admit that I am re really bothered. So the workplace, I don't think, is ready, as in a lot of society isn't ready. Mm. It's changing, and your podcast and the, the work we did, 
you helped to put information out there. And I think what's great is that workplaces are listening. Mm. They're actually saying, you know, we didn't realise this about our workforce, but now we do, we can do something about it. Yeah. Thinking about the whole, like you say, that arc, it's that whole life cycle of work life as well everything that affects it and we talk so much more i think about additional responsibilities the fact that families don't necessarily mean children they mean caring responsibilities in different ways generationally all sorts of things i think that's kind of filtering into the workplace as well and so hopefully all that makes up our everyday life starts to be recognized and starts to be taken into consideration of how it ultimately affects us showing up because it does affect how you show up doesn't it yeah absolutely in the the tapestry of your life there's many threads robin thank you it's been an absolute pleasure it's been great thank you so thank you to both of my guests to robin who i'm sure you'll agree gave so much fascinating insight into the impact on men in terms of being childless and how they're viewed in society and all those other things that he was explaining that I think a lot of us just don't even think about. And of course, our brilliant panellist from Zurich for so bravely sharing her experience again. Now, as you know, I spoke with Katie at the start of the conversation and we were quite short on time when we recorded it. And Katie just messaged me some more of her thoughts because she was really keen to convey the amazing work that she is doing in the workplace. So this is what she wanted to add. The work that we do with organisations primarily consists of raising awareness about how childless employees can be segregated and can unintentionally be excluded, you know, from the workplace because we have this focus on employees with children and it's important to say at this point that that is really crucial and we don't want to take away from parents, you know, in any way. But what we need to be mindful of is that there are unfair and even discriminatory practices happening to those employees who are childless. For example, it might be that employees without children are expected to take on higher workloads and maybe work unsociable shifts. You know, they might not have as much freedom around when to take annual leave. Yeah, I've come across in my research, you know, childless employees who have been denied flexible working, you know, because they're not a parent. And also others who have been expected to work full time and not able to reduce their contract because they don't have, you know, childcare needs. So yeah, it's raising awareness about these issues and also in failing to formally recognise them the impacts that that then has on the workplace with, you know, loss of talent, um, discrimination cases, which evoke significant financial costs and those different things. But most importantly is really acknowledging the impact that this has on employees. You know, when you consider the statistics, this isn't something just affecting you know one or two people in a workplace it's estimated that between 20 and 30 percent of the workforce don't have children so we need to be formally acknowledging the issues that are experienced and this is what we do at missed workshops we raise awareness and provide training on childlessness as a topic and it's an honor to work within this field 
So please do check out the show notes for this episode. There's quite a few references to other people in terms of Jodie Day, who's done amazing work for women who are childless, not by choice. I also want to signpost you to Katie's former chat with us on series one of The F Word at Work, so you can learn more about the brilliant work that she does. If you could just take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and if you've enjoyed what you've heard, do rate and review it because it just tells other people that this is worth their ear holes when there is so much out there. And also, once you're subscribed, you'll be kept up to date of when the next episode of The F Word at Work is out. We are sharing this with you every week till the end of series two and we'd really love to hear your thoughts. So those reviews are a great way for us to know what you think. Thank you as always for listening. Do follow us on our socials at Fertility Matters at Work on LinkedIn and Instagram and on X. We're Fert Matters Work. You can access our free resources including our white paper and policy pointers via our website fertilitymattersatwork.com where you can also sign up to our newsletter to stay up to date on our free webinars.